Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're wrapping up our conversation with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy of Chaosium with a detailed look at what to expect from the new Masks of Nalathotep. Spoilers ahoy. But first, the news. I'm pleased to announce that Two-Headed Serpent has received a nomination for Best Adventure in the 2018 Any Awards. Two-Headed Serpent is a globe-trotting campaign for Pulp Cthulhu and was written by Scott, Matt and myself and published by Chaosium. Chaosium have received nominations in other categories, as have some Call of Cthulhu licensees. You can find a full list on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. Voting opens on July the 11th, and the awards presentation takes place at Gen Con in August. I'd also like to wish good luck to our friends over at the Miskatonic University podcast, who have received a nomination for Best Podcast. If you'd like to vote, then head over to anyawards.com. Dot com. That's E-N-N-I-E-awards.com. Well, appropriately enough for an episode about masks, at the time of, of this episode going out, should be in the process of recording an actual play of the opening chapter of the new masks, the, the Peru chapter, which I wrote for the How We Roll crew. I uh, don't know precisely when it will be out. Uh, we're planning to do it in pulp mode. And uh, yes, I, I shall let everyone know when it's available. And they've also just recently recorded episodes of uh, A Bleak Prospect, right? Your scenario from Nameless Horrors. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I've listened to the first one so far, and uh, yeah, it's, it's rather fun. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And our word this week is singular. It's an adjective. One. Being only one. Individual. Lone. Two. Being the only one of a kind. Unique. Three. A. Being beyond what is ordinary, especially in being exceptionally good. Remarkable. Three. B. Strange. Or unusual. Yeah, and this was a word that I first encountered through Lovecraft, I think, when I started reading Lovecraft's stories. This word cropped up an awful lot, and it wasn't really a word that I had had calls to use or <laughs> seen used very much, I don't think. It's a rather, Kill. yeah, somewhat old-fashioned, yeah. But, I mean, it's certainly one I can remember my mother using a fair bit. So, yeah, I'd certainly encountered it before I read Lovecraft. But I think that's an interesting point. This is something we haven't really addressed in the Word of the Week, which is kind of surprising. But Lovecraft, probably for all of us, I assume, did a fair bit to expand our vocabularies. I don't know about you two, but I mean, he's one of a handful of authors I can think of who've really challenged my vocabulary like that. I mean, Stephen Donaldson... I was just going to say, Stephen Donaldson, I just read the second book in the third Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, and, yeah, I kind of wish I had had a dictionary to hand. I did look up a few words, but, yeah, there was a lot of words there that I just hadn't ever encountered before. But he reminds me a, a bit of Lovecraft in that respect, in that not only does he use fairly unusual words, but he uses them frequently. Yeah. There, there are certain, certain words which you might expect to encounter once, which he will use several times in a book. I remember encountering uh, xiphoid for the first time in his books, for example, which just means sword-shaped, or incarnadine. Nothing is, is red or bloody or anything like that in his books. It's incarnadine. Or, or mean instead of someone's features. Yeah, everyone has a mean instead of a face. He was kind of weird in that respect. Well, there you go. Our next segment, the Donaldson uh, Word of the Week. And scoring 91 on the Lovecraftometer... In his main fiction, making it one of his favourite adjectives. And now let's take a look at how he used it in his writings. From Cool Air. It seems that he did not scorn the incantations of the medievalists, since he believed these cryptic formulae to contain rare psychological stimuli which might conceivably have singular effects on the substance of a nervous system from which organic pulsations had fled. And from the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. 
Unswerving and obedient to the foul legate's orders, that hellish bird plunged onward through shoals of shapeless lurkers and capers in darkness, and vacuous herds of drifting entities that poured and groped and groped and poured, the nameless larvae of the other gods, that are, like them, blind and without mind, and possessed of singular hungers and thirsts. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. After that date, however, they assumed a very singular and terrible cast, as they ran the gamut betwixt dronings of dull acquiescence, and explosions of frantic pain or fury, rumblings of conversation and whines of entreaty, pantings of eagerness and shouts of protest. And now, onto our main topic, the spoilerific version of Masks of Neartholotep. After last episode's spoiler-free discussion about Masks of Neartholotep with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy, we're getting into more detail. If you haven't played Masks and plan to do so, you may want to skip the main topic this time. Okay, so we're joined by Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy, both of Chaosium once more, for a spoiler-rich version of a chat about Mars of Nalathotep. So welcome, Mike and Lynn. Hello. Hello. That means if you're a player intending to play Mars of Nalathotep, you can't listen to this, so you have to go away and have a cup of tea. A very long cup of tea. Or a nice Big gin and tonic, because you're probably going to need it if you're playing. <laughs> <laughs> a cup of tea is code for beer. Sorry, I didn't. Games Workshop, a cup of tea is code for a beer. The trade secrets. <laughs> if you read, have a, go, go and have a think and a cup of tea in a rule book, that means go and have a beer. <laughs> with, with, with milk and sugar? Whatever you like. <laughs> I don't I don't know how you roll, Scott, but if that's the way, then, you know. But if you don't like beer, gin and tonic, that's fine. We did actually once have gin in one teapot and tonic in another and were pouring cocktails from teapots. Well, that's an idea for our next party. Yeah, it works. It's really good. Mm. Especially when you get the, if you get the, uh, the tonic, you get the two gins <laughs> filling them up at the same time. <laughs> Paul, based on previous experience, you just passed me a teapot full of gin and a straw, wouldn't you? Yeah, that'd, that'd do it. <laughs> so the old campaign classically led with the surprise death of Jackson Elias. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, that's a name you're probably familiar with, and this is where the name comes from. So the characters were introduced to this good friend of theirs without actually even knowing him. Now, have we changed this? I think we have. So there's a, a new chapter up front, right? We talked about this ahead of time, the fact that, as you said, it starts off with, you know, you're supposed to have these connections to this character, Jackson Lyles, you're supposed to know all about him. And you know, previously, you got, you know, a handout and a spiel that told you, you know, a bit about his history. But obviously, this was a bit of a hole, so much so that people have been writing their own prequel scenarios and, and coming up with ways of incorporating Jackson Elias into existing published scenarios. But we thought it would be a good idea to actually provide an optional opening chapter for the campaign now that would introduce Jackson Elias to the players. So we got this new chapter that's set in Peru in 1921, and... When I was writing it, I wanted to do a bit more than just you know, introduce Jackson Elias. I wanted to foreshadow some of the themes of the campaign. So even though there aren't necessarily direct investigative hooks uh, from the Peru chapter to the rest, there's bits that, as the players play the larger campaign, will sort of fall into place. Um, and they'll, they'll sort of see echoes of things that have gone before, or you know, some things that perhaps were superficially explained in Peru will suddenly fall into a larger context. I think also there's additional game echoes, aren't there? Not only in terms of the context, but things like a character having gone through Peru, who later in the, in the campaign may have a bout of madness or a period of insanity in, in, in that respect. There is advice in the Peru prologue to actually, you know, bring back, you know, instances of horror that have been playing on their mind and, and to reiterate that through the campaign. And there are key points in the later campaign that have direct correlations to the, what happened in Peru in terms of thematically or visually. And so that, there's some useful kind of echoes back there as well, I think, which will be interesting to see how they kind of play out. 
I wrote this this scenario to be in tone fairly similar to the rest of the campaign. Uh, it's obviously by design not as deadly because there's probably no point in introducing a bunch of investigators to Jackson Lies and then killing everyone. That might be seen as counterproductive. Um, so it, it is perhaps a little gentler uh, than the rest of the campaign, but I, I'd like to think it's still pretty nasty. Yeah, I think we can say it is, yeah, having playtested it. <laughs> I'm not sure my character survived the playtest. Oh, God, I remember what happened to your character. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that wasn't good. I do remember having a conversation with Scott about the lethality at one point, and Scott going, no, 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 it's all right, because this is then going to, I'm going to write this, that, that this happens, and that it's going to be all right. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's certainly, it's certainly still got some teeth, but it's but you're absolutely right. It isn't. Um, there's plenty of guidance and things that happen that actually pull back from actually killing off everyone in one fell swoop. Yeah, I think in the five playtests I ran of it, and I ran it using both Straight Call of Cthulhu and Pulp, I think during that time I only had two investigator deaths, which, you know, for masks, you know, I, I, I think is about as mild as one can hope for. Is that including Paul's or not including Paul's? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's arguable whether Paul's character actually died. Or, or did the rest of you kill him? I, I think the rest of you no, might have killed him. We, we oh, No, we didn't. We didn't kill him, no. Oh, that would have been mercy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm proud that, you know, I played it properly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know you're doing it right. <laughs> the other thing to be said, though, is that, as, as Scott kind of mentioned, is that what a lot of keepers have, have liked to have done over the years is, is to, you know, uh, design their own little prologue scenarios for the, before the campaign with the Jackson Wise. And this, this slots in easily with that as well, because it happens in 1921, four years before the main campaign starts. There's still plenty of scope to kind of have Jackson reappear uh, and do, a, a sm again, a small little scenario of your own design if you wish to. And indeed, you know, again, the other mass companion has two scenarios, I think, prologue scenarios. You know, if you want to incorporate those, then, you know, you can do so. Obviously, you may have to sort of jig things around a little bit, but that does allow people that, you know, want to invest some of their own creativity into the campaign. There is space to do that still. It doesn't kind of stop you from doing that either. Yeah, because if you're being really devious, you run the Peru chapter, you go do something else, and then you slap them with the telegram. Yes, yes. So that it's a nice slow burn build-up. It occurs to me, I mean, if I were running it, I'd be tempted to run the traditional opening scene of the, them finding Jackson Elias dead and then do the flashback to play the Peru chapter. I don't oh, know, that yeah. might work. <laughs> yeah, that would work. We've actually put that advice in there, in the Peru chapter. Yeah. Have you? Oh, I missed that. Okay. There's a short kind of uh, cameo scene of, you know, you walking up to this uh, dark hotel door and hearing something going on behind it. And as you go to open the door, then you flash back to the beginning of Peru. Kind of thing so that, that you know we did we did present the idea there yeah yeah that, i really like that idea because i do like for all its criticism it gets for you know introducing this character that nobody actually knows as your good friend i, I don't know i kind of like it you know the, the new introductory scenario is great but uh for me i kind of like that old start well let's be honest there's plenty of scenarios out there that have been written and published where you are pulled into it through somebody you your characters in theory know but have never met and it's never really been an issue but it's you know not to devalue the proof scenario but it, it was just a great scenario and it works very well as a prologue and sets things up very well but, but you know as we say in the book it's an optional prologue if, if you're short of time and you don't think you can manage to get another scenario in your gameplay then you know you can start you know in the classic version of in in New York City but you know we think most yeah. people are going to want to play the Peru chapter because it's new and it's cool and uh, there you go and and it's also significantly shorter than the other chapters as well um so you know it's it's not like you know some of the later chapters where you'd be playing it for a month or two with this i i don't think any playtest that i did ran longer than four sessions and most of them were two or three so you you're talking about other new additions to the campaign paul there's a there's a few that kind of spring out there's obviously plenty of new mm. things but but there are some things that spring out. There's, if we take it in a kind of logical order through the book, the, the next chapter, which is the start of the campaign in, in New York City, America, there's a kind of subplot of the, uh, the Innocent Man plot, which is technically a new feature within there, which helps to sharpen the focus on what is happening in Harlem, you know, with the cultists at work there. But Scott, you, you did a lot of the, uh, the work yeah. and Lynn did uh, on that. You both want to sort of say a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, I, the, the purpose of that subplot was, I mean, when I was reading through the New York chapter, you know, for the first time in 30-something in years, uh, you know, a, a couple of things struck me. One was how easy it was basically to to miss or uh, you know, uh, all the stuff that was going on in Harlem. The, the link to it was comparatively tenuous compared to a lot of the other things that, that were going on. So I thought it would be interesting to provide some sort of backup links, um, you know, some more connections that might drag the investigators towards Juju House and the other things that are going on there. Uh, because a lot of that stuff is just too cool to miss out on. And the other was... A, a sort of misgiving I'd had um, with the way the Harlem chapter was presented. I don't mean this as, as a major criticism of the original campaign, but it did seem like um, the people of Harlem were presented as being very passive uh, when you know there, there, there was horror going on in their midst, when people were dying under mysterious circumstances, when you know g generally horrible things were happening, and they were basically waiting for a bunch of investigators to come in and save them when when all this stuff was going on. And I, I don't know, that just didn't quite sit right with me. So I, I wanted to put a bit more of of the fight back there and have the investigators walk into an ongoing situation rather than just um you know turning up and thinking well why the hell are we the ones sorting this out <laughs> well scott did all the groundwork and plotted out the scenario and so he could go and concentrate on peru i then picked it up and filled in in the bits around the, the edges him having sort of laid all the juicy bits in for me to do that so it, it's an interesting thing i don't really want to give too much away even though this is the spoiler section but in some ways it the investigators walk into the middle of an ongoing investigation, one that um, police corruption is attempting to derail. And in many ways, it kind of shadows or mirrors what they're doing. But it's just the, the forces from outside have kind of managed to put one over on the investigative group that was already involved and have cowed them into backing off I found it really interesting to do, partly because it gave us a chance to build Harlem's role in it, because Harlem's a fascinating place in the 1920s, but also to sort of give the investigators a glimpse of, if things go wrong, this is kind of where you could end up. You know, there are serious ramifications here for what you're getting yourselves mixed up in at the moment. So bear in mind that if things go wrong, this is where you may very well find yourself. And as you say, I mean, Harlem was was a, a, an absolutely amazing place in the 1920s. And I don't think that this really came across in the original version of Masks. I mean, the, the Harlem section there was quite brief and it didn't really give a lot of background. And I think also, having lived in New York in the 1980s, Harlem in the 70s and 80s was a very different place than well, it is now and that it, certainly than it was in the 1920s. I mean, it had been hit by a lot of what's referred to as urban decay, which had perhaps uh, you know color people's view of of what Harlem was and it was easy to forget at the time that you know Harlem wasn't always like that that you know it wasn't always poor it wasn't always um you know there there weren't always you know derelict buildings and um I think it was interesting to have the opportunity to go back and add some of that detail into the uh, the chapter and try to make Harlem a you know a bit more like Harlem. Yeah, sort of like an interesting place to be and be investigating in rather than, oh, it's, it's just there. You don't need to worry about that. This is the bit that you're going to. Don't, don't think about anything else. I think, and I think it was also important to, to represent Harlem in that way in, in the personalities that are introduced in, the, in the, new, the new material. So it's not just Juju House and the cultists that we know from the original, but we have Harlem residents who have their own agendas, their own lifestyles, and... and, and Putting them in front of the uh, in front of the uh, the players as well. It's not just a direct arrow to one particular building in Harlem. There's a there's a you get to see a, a bit more of the breadth of Harlem in that way. A, little, a lot more of the colour and the uh, the the kind of vibrance that was going on during the Harlem Renaissance. That kind of thing. And also, um, you know, we've got uh, Jackson Eliza's lawyer now, who's based in Harlem as well, uh, who um, you know becomes a, a fairly key NPC in the chapter and can form the basis for an ongoing investigator group uh, that can provide perhaps a little more cohesion for the campaign. Um, you know, instead of I, I, I do remember you know back when I was running masks in the eighties that. 
one of the the things that that came back because of the high attrition rate was just constantly trying to recruit new characters and it's sort of oh right well we saw that bellboy in the hotel a while back yeah we need an investigator he'll make a a fine one and and yeah it was just every random npc every random uh, profession you could think of uh, would just get swept up in the wake of this this ongoing investigation, and people who had no reason to get involved, you know, the the links were tenuous, would would suddenly be dropping their family connections, their jobs, travelling off to a foreign country, facing certain death for no reason. Um, so, so I think by by putting this investigator organisation um, funded by uh, Jackson Elias's will, um, I, I think at least for keepers who are bothered by that kind of thing, at least provides an option to to perhaps make it feel a bit more. I I, I hesitate to use the word realistic, but convincing. <laughs> The kind of concept of the investigator organisation in terms of masks, I just kind of took from the good friends of Jackson Elias because the player characters are, you know, supposedly good friends of Jackson Elias based on their experience of it, of meeting him and working with him in Peru and perhaps other encounters before the New York chapter starts. And I, and I just assumed that he would have this little black book of all the names of people he's kind of come across who've been helpful or, or useful to him. And so, you know, the investigators' names are all in this black book, but that doesn't mean there aren't some others. And so having Jackson's lawyer effectively be in possession of something like Jackson's black book, he can call up these other people that Jackson has met who are then maybe introduced to the player characters, you know, are called in, you know, when 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 they need help. They can say, well, Jackson met a, a language specialist in Cairo. Uh, let me put you in touch with him, see if he may be of help. And that could just be an NPC or could be a replacement player character. So I just thought it seemed to work well with the, the concept of the, the setup of the campaign. And I remember having this, this discussion with you over breakfast at Dragonmead a couple of years ago. And actually, the note about Jackson's little black book is in my little black notebook for Call of Cthulhu <laughs> ideas. <laughs> I like to think that Jackson's little black book, he's got sort of noted down, you know, this guy's got a good spot hidden skill. I think this guy's, this guy's really strong. <laughs> this guy's really intelligent. Maybe I'll rate it out of 100 as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy always seems to manage to find dynamite from somewhere. Yeah. We'll call him Matt Sanderson. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to the England chapter, just again, just to briefly talk about a couple of new things. One of the things in the original campaign is that in, in the plot is that artifacts are being taken from Australia, from the city of the great race and sent to England to be manufactured into components or uh, retro kind of fitted it to be components for the, for, the, uh, for the device being built in China. And it struck me as I was working on the England chapter that uh, actually it's just said, but never actually described or detailed that somewhere in England, somebody's manufacturing components. And it is kind of glossed over a little bit in the original campaign. And it struck me that that's a, that's a clue lead that kind of goes to a dead end. And so clearly there should be somewhere that is doing this work for the cult, basically. Well, particularly in a very pulpy game, you know, where you want lots of weird science and stuff like that, having mm. a base that's all about the weird science. I mean, what's pulpier than that? Well, exactly. And so uh, there is a kind of a subsection within the England chapter, which is about this manufacturing plant that is uh, effectively funded by the cult. But it, it itself presents dilemmas because you have to ask yourself the question as well. The guys, the engineers actually working on this material, are they cultists or are they just being paid to do the work? And so uh, it, it, it kind of throws up a nice kind of dilemma within that kind of uh, subplot. You know, well, how do you handle this situation? You know, do you go in guns blazing and effectively could be just you know, shooting down a bunch of innocent guys in flat caps and uh, all sat around an engineering plant? Or are they cultists? And, you know, you have to make a decision and... and um, and you know, and it can affect you know how you interact with that whole kind of um, setup there. So that's that's a kind of a new element within there that I think rounds out the kind of the core conceit of the campaign and just kind of fills in what was effectively a little bit of a blank spot uh, originally. Now there's a kind of typical order to these chapters that was traditionally played. Maybe you know a few variants. Do we think we've broadened out that range now? Because typically they go from like New York to London, probably I would say then to Egypt. Yeah. That's probably pretty much 
the most probable route still yeah if you're following the the shortest journey uh, that people can make between points then yeah it was it was always traditionally new york london egypt uh, kenya uh, shanghai and then maybe australia so lynn you headed up egypt i did do you want to do you want to say something about that what what uh, what new exciting things have you got for us in egypt well, Egypt was a very busy chapter anyway, so it didn't really need a great deal of new stuff adding in there to like further complicate people's lives. What we really took from that was actually Nitocris and putting more about what she might be up to into other chapters. So if people do go off and do the chapters out of order and they fail to stop Nitocris from being resurrected, what's she going to be up to? She's not just going to sit on her hands waiting for the end of the world she's got plans of her own so there's just little boxes appear in the various different chapters going well if you know if they didn't stop her coming back to life well she could be doing this here depending on the flavor of your campaign or you know she might be using the investigators as total patsies because it amuses her or she might be trying to kill them because they're a threat to not only her plans but also the Carlisle expedition's plans so that was more extrapolating out from Egypt to other places rather than adding more necessarily into Egypt. And I can see some people saying, well, a good GM would do that anyway. But, you know, that's kind of the point, isn't it? We've presented it for people or you've presented it for people. So they, you know, that occurs to them and it's it's there. Yeah, so it's less for them to worry about and less work for them to do. Because again, this is going back to the helping support people who aren't experienced keepers who do need just a little bit more backup to help them feel confident in running something like this i'm just going to throw in i think it's even experienced keepers i mean with a campaign such as mass there are a lot of moving parts that have a knock-on effect throughout the campaign once the players tip over the boxes in one location uh, there are knock-on effects too so you are keeping track of a lot of moving parts and, and personalities and so it's, it's easy to forget somebody uh, like the resurrected queen in Egypt in terms of the role she might play in later parts of the campaign because she doesn't factor into the core campaign in itself, but she has a role or could play in that. And so it's, I think it's useful, those little aid memoirs, even if you know, you're know you a, a very experienced keeper, just the fact there's a box on a page to remind you, you know, is, is a useful touch as well, I think. And I think it's a tricky thing in presenting the campaign to have those things incorporated later because, for example, of the factory you mentioned in England, Mike, if they've taken out that factory, that needs to have repercussions down the line. But you can't write two versions of every single event depending on you know what happened previously. Yeah. But what we have hopefully done is to present box text and, and, and so on that reminds the keeper of those repercussions. But I, I think it's really helpful just not making assumptions that the keeper's going to have ideas for dealing with all these things. Because I Masks was the first campaign I ever ran, or the, the first published campaign I ever ran. And, you know, thinking back to the way I ran it back in the 80s from the original text, there were a lot of things that I really wish I'd done differently because being a very inexperienced keeper, um, you know, I'd, I'd run a bit of Call of Cthulhu, but not a lot. I pretty much took everything that was in the text as gospel. I wasn't comfortable improvising around it. I wasn't comfortable going against what the text told me to do. There were a number of things where the players did things that you know, I, I wasn't expecting or things went in a different way where I suddenly felt completely out of my depth. And I'd like to think that you know, what, what we've got in the new edition is you know, the, the book that if I'd had back in the 1980s, I would have run a much better campaign with. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope that's what we've managed to do for people. Then most likely they're going to head on to Kenya now, the Kenya chapter is a major keystone in the campaign. There's a big event that happens there at the Mountain of the Black Wind. And that was a, a tricky one, really, because it's like, well, this could really be a TPK. Do you tone it down a lot or what do you do? And looking at the probable outcomes, I figure, well, actually, the new rules with the way it sort of handles insanity and so on, I, I took the idea that just to provide advice to the keeper on how to handle that, when the, when the characters most likely do 
go insane, you know, seeing these manifestations. And there are thousands of cultists there, so they can probably just blend in and just a few days later sort of come to their wits and, and kind of collect whatever information they've got and like, try and get away. Um, it doesn't have to be all those cultists trying to kill the PCs because if that happened, it would be a, just a, a simple TPK. Yeah, and that's it, isn't it? I think sometimes people forget that when you do have loads of cultists who've come from all over the world, they're not going to necessarily know everyone. So a couple of strange faces in the crowd, you could get away with that. Yeah. Totally. Well, and also, you know, there's so much stuff going on during that ceremony and, and, you know, the surrounding events anyway, that the vast majority of them are going to be pretty distracted, you know, from whatever it is the investigators are doing anyhow. And something I'd like to touch on uh, is how we handled the red herrings, because throughout the campaign in most chapters, I think there's some kind of red herring type mini scenario, vignette, whatever you want to call it. And often these were totally red herrings. They didn't tie into the campaign at all. In general, now what we've done, a lot of those have stayed in. But they're kind of tangentially tied in or there's a, a kind of motif that sort of ties in with the campaign. Um, would other people agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. The two, England's the only chapter, I think, that's got two kind of sidetrack scenarios in it. They're both obviously still in there. But um, I did kind of work on the first one, the, uh, the serpent one, has some direct links into the campaign tangentially. Not, not important links, but they, there are some linkage. The second one has no real link. It does It does have a background link, but it's very, very tenuous. But it's more a geographical link because the investigators will be in the area where that is taking place. And, you know, and like all good sidetracks should be, they are optional and the investigators can choose to ignore it or go into it. And if they go into it, then they're presented with a with a significant dilemma in terms of the way that the, uh, the Derbyshire horror is rewritten. It's not a straightforward case perhaps as um, it might have first hand appear. Like the travel sections in the campaign, the sidetracks are there intentionally as pauses, allows the players to kind of, you know, not worry too much about the big campaign for a moment, for a session or two, and just concentrate on, the, on a, an easier to solve puzzle perhaps. So there's a sense of achievement going through. Whereas in the larger campaign, you know, the, because it is so big and, and, and sprawling, it is harder sometimes to get a sense of achievement at points through the campaign. So the sidetracks, because they can be relatively neatly tied up, they do kind of provide that kind of sense of achievement and, and a pause to allow everyone to kind of you know, collect their breaths before they go their head back into the, the main core of the campaign. And another aspect of the, the sidetracks that I'd forgotten about uh, before rereading uh, the, the book a couple of years ago was how many of them didn't really have any mythos elements that they used uh, perhaps more traditional horror movie tropes and I, I don't know for me they they felt almost quite jarring in places in that you know because of my personal biases and what I want to see in Call of Cthulhu they didn't necessarily feel like they belonged in the Call of Cthulhu campaign yeah well yeah I mean it's quite a funny actually the the Derbyshire horror scenario in the original is set up that um, the advice at the very start of the scenario is that do your best to, you know, ensure your players don't realize there's a werewolf involved in this scenario as a player going in and you look at the information you're presented with. It's, 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 it's absolutely hundred percent crystal clear that this, this is a werewolf or this, <laughs> this sounds like a werewolf. So uh, in the, um, in the revised version, I intentionally play on that and say, actually just reverse the guide and say, let your players think this is a werewolf. You know, throw everything at them that you make sure that they think this is a werewolf because, twist, it's not a werewolf in the new version because it is set up, it is, it's a classic an American werewolf in London kind of setup almost in a sense in the fact that, you know, you've got these guys going in and, and it's a little village community who are under the shadow of this thing that is happening to them. It just struck me well. You know, if I was, if I, <laughs> as a player, I would think immediately this is a werewolf. So let's play on that and actually make play on it to its fullest effect. So uh, hopefully, it becomes a twist to some degree. So then, from Kenya, we move on to um, is the next chapter presented Australia? It is. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. So that was another one of yours, Paul. Yeah. So another 
well, very memorable chapter, but one that wasn't in the original, original um, version. So we have the guy out in the, in the desert, in the city beneath the sands in the Great Race of Yith. The chapter sort of touches on various points around Australia. And this is such a massive place, you know, that to, to sort of travel from one city to another, well, even today, you know, is, is a big journey. Um, back then was, was huge. And there were one or two things in there that, you know, I don't know about how, how other people feel about this, but like the, it drew quite a lot on Australian Aboriginal mythology. I wasn't too sure about how to handle that at first. So I looked at those and they didn't really seem to be tying in with the Cthulhu mythos, as Scott said. So some of those we kind of changed out. What do other people think about I me? Mean, did you have similar things in other, other chapters? I was kind of lucky with the, the sidetracks in Egypt and China. The Egypt one actually tied in far more closely to the plot than all the other ones because obviously Van Heuvelen has direct links to the Clive expedition. He's your way in there. So it is close to the plot, even though the actual events of it are separate from it. And the China one, uh, the Demon Cabinet, that was actually quite easy to tie back into the plot Whereas, yeah, the Australia one, it, there were certain elements of it, particularly in the underground city, that, as Scott said, it felt really jarring. It didn't feel mythos. It felt like it had been put there maybe to give it an Australian flavour, but it, it didn't quite work in some respect. I think that may be because of the history of the scenario, because whilst... Uh the Australia chapter was originally written as part of the original text. Obviously, it wasn't included, as, as we've said, in the uh, first edition of Masks and was later brought in. Uh, it was actually first published in Terra Australis, uh, the source book for Australia. And I, I have to say, I don't know the full history of the development of the scenario, but my guess is that when it was incorporated into that book, um, I, I kind of imagine that some of the... Um, Australian Aboriginal elements within the scenario were perhaps expanded or included because it was in the Terra Australis book. And so when it was put back into masks, they weren't really rethought through in terms of the context of the greater campaign. So I think that's maybe, maybe, I could be wrong, but that, that's maybe where it kind of stems from. I think, yeah, Paul was right that, that whilst they are fine in and of themselves, they, they, they don't really gel that well with the rest of the campaign and, and Australia has always been commented on as it, it felt that when it was put back into the campaign it felt kind of bolted in rather than being a part of the a greater part of the whole so Paul was right to kind of you know look at how to kind of meld it more in a tonal sense to the rest of the campaign by doing that and equally what we've did with the other chapters was to increase the visibility of Australia within the other chapters and so the clues and links to Australia are that much greater in the rest of the campaign whereas in the original campaign they were there weren't that many and so it was it, it did kind of come across as an afterthought at times. Now something that occurs in the chapter is that obviously the chapter is greatly influenced by Lovecraft's story The Shadow Out of Time but it takes place before the events of that story. And there's a character in the chapter, Mackenzie, who is uh, well, not a key player, but features in Lovecraft's story. And there's kind of a concern in the text that, oh dear, what's going to happen if this character gets killed? You know, don't let him get killed. Otherwise, Lovecraft's story isn't going to work. It's like, well, <laughs> who cares? Because if you have this character killed off in your story, well, obviously future events play out differently. And equally, back in Africa, we have something um, with uh, Jomo Kenyatta, who goes on to be the president of Kenya. And potentially something terrible could happen to him in the events of the, of the game. And wow, then you'd be rewriting future events. But, you know, big news, the world might end at the end of this campaign. So <laughs> <laughs> the small things like that just don't really seem to be that big a deal to me. I think, you know, there's this, I don't know, there, there's sometimes, there is a, sometimes a desire to make all the Call of Cthulhu campaign scenarios, Lovecraft stories, all part of one mm. universe, in a sense, where I don't think you can, because Lovecraft's, Lovecraft's own stories aren't, aren't a cohesive whole, they are exactly. disparate, and, and so <laughs> I, I view every campaign in its own, its own universe, so, you know, in my campaign, Horror in the Orient Express does not happen in the same universe as Masks of Malatotep. 
Now, another player, another keeper may, may decide that they do, and that's just absolutely fine. But in my head, you know, to kind of exemplify it, you know, you can, you can then just pull out the stops and you can do whatever you like during that campaign because that's its own story. That's that story. Here's another story we're going to tell another time. You know, and I think that's as valid as, as, as anything else. Yeah, it's it's weird the way that people get hung up on stuff like that and certain aspects of it. Like you say, I mean, the you know, the world, the world may well end if the investigators screw up masks from the other step. And yeah, I remember we saw this as well with another campaign that at least three of us worked on, which was the Curse of Nineveh, uh, where uh, you know some of the feedback that we got from people online was, well, the, the climax of this is awful. I mean, if the if the PCs fail, then it's going to change the world completely. And it's yes, that's the fucking point. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, there's, there's actually when I was proofing it again the other day, there is there's one of the I think it's probably the, the China chapter we actually go and this is da 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 da. Well, unless of course the investigators fail to stop the end of the world, at which point none of this is going to happen. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Do you want to go on and say a bit more about China, Lynn? Because that's would that probably be from Australia? We're probably heading on to China. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, again, that's a very busy busy chapter mm. there's a lot going on because of course traditionally that's usually the climax you get to china you find jack brady he tells you everything that's happened if you haven't already figured it out um you get to go off and play with the demon cabinet for a bit if you want to if you're going to go do the sidetrack then you basically go and do your james bond finale on the volcanic island and hopefully destroy the big rocket at the end um so that was that was a fun chapter to do, but it was also really daunting because, as Mike was saying earlier, that is one that's got a lot of moving parts in it. So we actually do specifically say, you know, like, think very carefully about which of these elements you're going to include as a keeper, because, you know, if you include all of them, you're going to be making your life really difficult because there's at least three factions you've got to keep track of. So there's obviously the cultists, Ho Fang and Sir Aubrey there in that, that little group. You've got one of the major changes we, we made was obviously that um, the Fu Manchu character is now a woman. Um, she is a powerful madam with an interest in the occult. Uh, so you've got her faction. She's got her own agenda and what she's trying to achieve you and you've got jack brady and firm action and what they're trying to do so that's a lot of people to sort of figure out who's doing what and of course you've got the japanese military guy so Gitaro in there so he can throw a spanner in the works a lot of the advice we put in that was have a big palette that it's playing out against against the background but keep the action small and concentrated on your players because it's very, very easy to get lost in all of that. Hmm. The other thing to sort of build on the fact that China traditionally tends to be the climax of the campaign, but it doesn't have to be. It, once the players have done the New York America chapter, they can go to any point, in theory, any of the locations in any order they like. So one of the things that I felt was important to include in all of the chapters post-New York was uh, advice at the end to say that if this is the end of your campaign here are some things to consider and so you know to ensure that you know there was some guidance there because you know uh, as it stands there really wasn't any guidance in the campaign to sort of say well if you actually end in England how do you end the campaign what what happens what should you end on so there is advice about what would be a suitable climax in that chapter for an end of campaign climax and often it's the same as the actual chapter standard climax but but obviously with some additional advice and suggestions and what we did we added a secret final chapter which is just called the grand conclusion and that talks about different ideas and ways to actually pull the whole campaign together at the very end and pull the little bit of work on an exercise kind of a formula really to to help keepers tally the successes and failures of the of the investigators as they go through the entire thing paul do you want to say a little bit about that it was just a way of abstracting it really for the gm i mean this is purely for the gm to sort of think okay well they you know there's various tick boxes for things that the player characters might have done as we alluded to with the factory in britain if they knock that out that erodes the cult's power a little bit and there are various touchstones through the campaign where the players may have done this or done that 
So by allocating them a kind of abstracted point value, the keeper can go through and get an overall feel for have the players done a really good job and earned lots of points or have they not done so much and kind of middling or have they really failed? And then we've just provided three broad brush outcomes. So there's, if they've really missed all of the key things, then there's kind of the end of the world scenario. There's a big kind of middle band of things are really bad. There's lots of cracks in reality and the monsters are coming through, which could lead on some great sequel adventures of your own creations. And then there's the tick all the boxes and and save the day. You know, well done you. Um, So the aim there is really just to make it easy for the keeper by just abstracting that. And obviously the players aren't going to see that side of things. They're just going to see the, the outcome. Yeah, because certainly the thing, if if you do go to China straight after you've been to New York, then your whole campaign outlook is going to be very, very different. Because if you do, if you do meet Jack Brady, you've got a lot more background information as to what's going on and who you need to be wary of than if you get to him in the end and he's just kind of filling in the, the little details that you may not have picked up on along the way. The chances of you necessarily being able to take out the rocket then are lower because you might not necessarily know what you're dealing with because you haven't been to England and you haven't been to the the manufacturing plant so you haven't had chance to have a look at some of these bits and bobs or, or stop them getting out there so yeah the extra advice as to how to handle these things hopefully will be very useful to people and it definitely does happen that way. I mean, I've spoken to people um, who've run, you know, lots of different people who've run masks. And while certainly, you know, it is most common to end on the China chapter, I've certainly spoken to people who've ended up in Australia, ended with Kenya. I, I've yet to speak to anyone who's who's entered in either uh, Egypt or England. But, you know, I, I, just from the law of averages, there's got to be a group out there somewhere where that's happened. And that's why that that final chapter is really good, because it does go, well, these are the really important sites, but here's what you could also be doing if you're not in one of those. These, you know, and this is how your actions can have an effect. So, again, that's just a nice extra level of things that the keeper doesn't have to worry about making up on the fly if they find themselves in that situation or find themselves in the situation where they're trying to force their players to go in a particular direction so that they get to what they think has to be the particular conclusion now this is a classic campaign as we've said it's it's been around for decades and most of us we've played it or run it you know what memories do we have or or maybe i'll start with you lynn i mean you said you you haven't run it or played it are there any scenes in there that really kind of stick in your mind having read through it that you know seems like a really iconic scene I would have to say the whole rocket finale at the end in in China that that just really did evoke complete memories of James Bond various like villains lairs of everybody streaming in and and fireworks and lava and all sorts of things going off and that just stood out for me as a really great set piece and I had a great deal of fun putting in stupid pulp options <laughs> or you could do really gonzo things with that finale if you really wanted to what about you scott the abiding memory i have of running masks and i can't remember whether i've mentioned this on the podcast before so apologies if i have was when i was running it for my university group in dundee um there was one player uh, an old friend of mine called luke uh who was a very skilled power gamer and and a, a long-time RuneQuest player as well. And he decided that he was going to have a character who damn well survived masks. And, you know, the, the other investigators were just dropping like flies all around. But he came up with the idea of playing this Japanese historian who was fascinated by uh, the age of the samurai and and would go around everywhere in masks wearing full samurai armor with a sword because it gave him six points of armor. So, you know, <laughs> if, if people shot him, the bullets would bounce off. And and yeah, I mean. Everyone else, you know, by the time they got to Shanghai, everyone else had been through at least a half dozen different characters. And and Luke was still on his first character. I, I seem to remember his name was Saigo. And <laughs> it got to this this scene in Grey Dragon Island, you know, the, the bit Lynn was just talking about where it's all kicking off. 
and there is a shoggoth in there and and it's handled somewhat differently in in the new edition but in 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 the original edition there's just a fucking shoggoth in there so um i uh, luke yeah, being faced with this thing, decided yeah he'd he'd managed to stand up against every other creature and every cultist in the campaign so far. Uh, so I uh, yeah I described this this shoggoth bearing down on the the entire party, and everyone else was running, scattering for cover, you know, looking for weapons they could use. And he said, "Okay, I stand in front of it and draw my sword." <laughs> and, <laughs> and and and, and uh, I, I I I said, "I'm not even going to roll." damage you're dead yeah that's just <laughs> spam and can and he said yeah but i've got armor i've got six points of armor and it's yeah but can you imagine what would happen if you were standing in front of a freight train <laughs> how much good would your armor do you then <laughs> uh, that did not go down well <laughs> <laughs> but what a death though <laughs> <laughs> i draw my sword splat <laughs> <laughs> And Mike? It probably goes back to the um, first time I played in Masks. There's a couple of... Well, there's, it was, it's, there's a lot of standout scenes for me, but I'll try and pick only one or two. <laughs> Actually, one was a consequence of the other, really. So throughout the campaign, one of the players had a character, a Chinese character, who was a book-learning type, who uh, basically any tome we came across it would go into his possession and he would became the font of all mythos knowledge. By the time we got to China, he, he had this stack, this travelling library of mythos tomes and then decided, then just announced <laughs> to the keeper that that night, while, while the rest of us were sleeping, he was going to leave because he'd got all the information he needed now and he was just going to go away and spend the rest of his life studying it and becoming well-versed in all the law and just left the campaign <laughs> and just ran off into the night with all the books, all the clues, everything. So we, we all woke up and he's like, where's he gone? He's gone! And we couldn't, you know, we, we couldn't find him and, and it, was just, it was just gone. And uh, so, so we were completely screwed. You know, the only clue we kind of had in our hands at the time was the uh, the ship, Ivory Wind. And, and we knew the boat was in the harbour. So we said, well, that's the only clue we've got. You know, it's the only dead fact we know that there's something wrong with that boat or there's something that will take us to where the cultists are. So we all stowed away on the boat. Um, but while we were sneaking around trying to find somewhere to hide, we found uh, the engine room and we found the glowing green rock. <laughs> that's Dark Mistress. Dark, dark Mistress, sorry. Dark Mistress, yeah. And... Um, we found the glowing green rock and we thought, oh, this is this is this is alien and, and weird. Let's take it. Let's take <laughs> it and we'll, we'll hide we'll hide it in ourselves in the boat and then see what happens. You know, we'll, and, you know, probably they need this stone for their great plan and we'll steal it and do away with it. And of course, you know, twenty four hours later, we're all dying from radiation poisoning, <laughs> and so and so ended the campaign. So. so <laughs> brilliant uh how about you then paul well i, I just remember the uh vault underneath the pyramids where uh, there was that lake the, and we were we walked past it the dm did describe like a, a ripple of sort of dark water but we didn't think anything of it and there's like a little boat tied up on it there's just this big rectangular lake uh, a pool really with a little boat on it and then we got up to the other end of the room and these statues, you know, animated and started coming at us. So we ran away. But one of the players was like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to jump onto that little boat on that pool and then the things won't be able to get me. And we, yeah, great, great idea. Of course, he makes the, the jump roll and fails it and falls into the black water, which turns out to be, of course, leeches. But not just regular <laughs> leeches, right? A pool of massive blood-sucking leeches he manages to get out somehow and is really kind of in a bad way now and i like to think it was the same character but it might not have been <laughs> but but then one of the characters of course there's the throne and this is why i just felt felt we had to have this in even though it's an almost certain sort of taker of pc out but he sat in the throne is possessed by nalathotep and rolls like D hundred Sanalos and like loses one point. And it's like yes. <laughs> <laughs> so wakes up a minute or two later and he's like, "Well, what happened?" 
well, you were like possessed by now, Arthur Depp. But yeah, it was uh, it was very eventful. And I think it's those crazy things that are sometimes saved by freak dice rolls that become really uh, long-lasting mm. memories. Yeah, I mean, I remember the only time I ever played any of Masks from the Isle of the Tep, I, I sat in on a couple of sessions uh, with Skype of Cthulhu uh, back when uh, Keeper Murph was, was running Masks. And yeah, I just remember sort of coming into the middle of all this chaos in uh, the England chapter. And um, they, they basically just completely screwed up a raid on, I think it was Penhurst's place. Uh, but they, 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 they were wanted by the police. They'd, um, they, they, they'd run off with a whole load of items. And they were basically hiding out in someone's stately home, or at least on the grounds of it. And the whole session was them there basically cataloguing the various tomes and artifacts and spells and so on, and, and trying to work out what they all did. And there was more PC death and madness in that than in, in, in your average fight scene. It was just, oh, okay, well, let's see what this does. Oh, that's what that does. Right, okay, let's roll up and you investigate. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine that. In fact, I can hear various of them doing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much to Mike and Lynn for joining us once more to talk about Marcel and Arthur Tep. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Yeah. It's been good. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we would like to thank each and every one of you who have given us money via Patreon. The money you pledge to us keeps the show running. It pays for our running costs, it pays for new equipment, it pays for hosting, and it now pays for our time uh, in putting this podcast together, which is, is actually quite considerable sometimes. So thank you to each and every one of you, and we have some new people to thank. And thank you very much to Wes Fournier. Thank you, Wes. Hey, thanks, Wes. And he goes by one name. Well, I say he, maybe she. Thanks to Bear. Hey, now there's a name. Hey, thanks, Bear. Rawr. Thank you. <laughs> and we have a new $5 backer to thank. You know what this means, don't you, Matt? That means more singing, doesn't it? It does. Oh, boy. Our victim this week, Dennis Prue. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis, and, and prepare yourself. Thank you, Dennis Prue. Dennis Prue. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis On social media, we've had some feedback on our episode about the ritual. Wonder if, they, wonder if they commented on anything about the fact you had so many off licenses. Over on Facebook, Anton Bexelius said, "Thanks for another good episode. Regarding why Moda showed herself as Dom's wife before killing him, a possibility is that she likes scaring people. She is intelligent, after all. Why should she not be doing stuff because she just likes it?" Which I think is a good point. Yeah, I totally buy that. Yeah, I thought that was a good point that hadn't occurred to me. She just yeah. likes freaking people out. Yeah, it's like a cat playing with its prey. Yeah. Over on G+, Evelyn Moreau said, I was wondering if the creature wanted to be worshipped because it felt abandoned. It seemed like a child who clumsily mimics its parents, the gods, with its own interpretation of the love parents receive. It seemed to know that worship was something important, but didn't really understand it. I liked its petty nature because, in a sense, this was an uneducated, abandoned godchild who did not know better. It didn't want to be abandoned again, so it kept its human worshippers alive forever. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting interpretation, and it kind of makes it all the creepier that these people were, were kept in this undying, horrible state because 
this creature just wanted love. Yeah. You will love me forever, even if it means that you'll be mummified. I should have had the Beatles providing the soundtrack, really, shouldn't they? All you need is love. Da, 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 da. And Wouter Vermeyen, on, also on Google+, Plus, said, If I were playing a game that put me in a similar situation, that forest would have been on fire after the first night. Just as a point of principle about turning the home ground against the creature and getting the Swedish forestry services to rescue the party. I like this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he would fit in perfectly in our games. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a proper Call of Cthulhu game unless something's on fire. And if he's doing it from the outset, good on you. You're getting to the action straight away. (laughs) We jest, of course. Well, think of all the booze he has in that off-licence that could be used in accelerant. He would have so much fire. And it would get rid of the off-licence. Yeah. <laughs> Except it would just been on fire off-licence. <laughs> yeah. And now let's wrap the episode up with a brief chat with Matt about masks and the tip. Well, from your experience of playing masks, uh, well, first of all, actually, as well as playing masks, have you actually read it or have you just played it? I've mostly played it. I have read parts of it, mainly to find out what the hell did we miss when we skipped all, nearly half the London chapter. <laughs> what about the sidetrack scenarios, the red herrings, if you like? Bloody so werewolves. So werewolves. <laughs> there were was... some paintings that drove you fucking nuts. That, there, were, there were a couple of instances where they were frustrating, like the serpent one especially. The, the only thing that that, um, that particular sidetrack served us well with was that we took one of the paintings of the um, the bloody tongue lo- um, looming over the mountain in the back, black wind and used it as a way to terrify new investigators into the party by giving them immediate sand check by saying, <laughs> you want to join our party? What do you think of this? And then watch them make, uh, then watch them make the sand, uh, sand roll and usually plummet a bit. I'd forgotten that. <laughs> yeah, I, but, I mean, <laughs> did you find them frustrating because they were a red herring, because they weren't related to the campaign, so you were putting effort in there? Or what was, what was frustrating about them? They weren't related to the campaign massively. They weren't intrinsically important to it. But also, like the Serpent Person one, really goddamn lethal. And right. it was a pointless way to die. And the, were- the werewolf one was okay, but... That was more, oh, we suddenly wandered into gothic horror. Yeah, that, that's a bit different now in the new version. Uh, Mike rewrote that bit and it's it's significantly changed. Ah, oh, good. I'll be looking forward to read that bit then. <laughs> and do you have any particular favourite memories of playing the game? I mean, if you were to pick out like one thing that really sticks with you? <laughs> Mark Kerr's character death. Yeah, uh, why don't you just explain what you mean by that? We had one, character, uh, one player, Mark Kerr, who played uh, a couple of characters up till this point, I think. Um, ended up dying as a result of um, being hit by a poison dart in the um, in the Shanghai chapter. Then spent the a good half an hour in the rest uh, while the rest of us were playing in the session, rolling up a new character, coming up with a couple of links to other um, other characters in the in the existing group. Um, went back to the compound where we were staying, with the courtyard and the open roof. He's the only one that passed the listen roll to hear something dripping, aka the shogoth, pouring under the door. Um, into the compound so of course he does what any sane person would do when confronted with a wet patch he goes over there with a mop and starts to uh, starts to try and mop it up and that was it he was dead so he had his he had his one listen roll and then he was devoured by a shoggoth <laughs> which just makes a fantastic anecdote for any game really <laughs> but yeah that that was my oh and that and also the um uh, more again comedy aspect of um, one of the character names <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, you're glad to know he still or he or she still is in there. Yes, yay! <laughs> Complete with the name that stretches halfway across the page. Yes. <laughs> when you played it, uh, how did the campaign end? Did did you end up in Shanghai? Was it? I thought we'd actually strayed into "You Only Live Twice." That it was on Grey Dragon Island with the missile in the volcano <laughs> with the big Bond villain, and then taking down a dimensional shambler with, I think, two or three people with Tommy guns and killing everything in sight, including the shambler, including the bad guy. Matt not going, he was supposed to get away. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you think it would have been as exciting for you, at least with the version you played, if it had, uh, if the climax had been on a different chapter? I mean, I, I've always thought that, you know, at least in the original version of Masks, Shanghai was the obvious climax of the campaign. But I have spoken to people who've who've ended the campaign on different chapters. Kenya would have made a good one. Hmm. Um, 
because I know when we played it, um, that was the point where we'd reached a point and done several things. The, the Norsecal clock that we found, knocking the timer back five minutes, Matt explained, well, you've, you've technically won the campaign now. Do you want to just play the rest for shits and giggles or do you want to uh, you just want to carry on anyway? Yeah, again, that's yeah. kind of changed in the new edition. So, ah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, the, I think Kenya would make is again a fantastic set piece, if anything more terrifying than Shanghai. The problem with the Shanghai climax for me was the whole number crunching, kind of laborious casting of the Eye of Light and Darkness. Hmm. It was just very formulaic, very dry, and took forever with bloody dice rolls. And then you got to your action. It wasn't a constant ramp up of action. It was kind of, we're ramping up, and now we've got this big low, and then hmm. we're back up again, and then it's the end. Do you think you, you'd ever run masks, particularly with the new edition coming out? In that weird alternate dimension where I have this mythical free time that people <laughs> talk of, then yeah, sure. No, it is a campaign I would love to do. It's just that time constraints are the thing that hold me back. Well, join us next time when we discuss Insanity in Lovecraft in Call of Cthulhu. Okay, well, that wraps up our discussions of Master and Arthotep. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemoustomes.com Bloody day job. I know, it had to take place in the day when Matt was hard at work, mm. grinding spreadsheets or whatever he does. I like grinding. <laughs>